Well, good morning. For those of you that may not know who I am, my name's Russ. I'm one of the elders here at Ephesus Church, and I'll be your preacher this morning. Uh, Pastor Nick, if you don't know, is vacationing. He was in Florida this week, and this morning he's actually preaching at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. That's Brother Kurt Smith's church. Some of you remember him. So apparently, Pastor Nick didn't think it was hot enough here, so he wanted to go south a little bit. So we, uh, we'll be uh, thinking about him. They should be back tonight. So this morning, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. The key words are thankfulness, assurance, and joy. Thankful or thankfulness assurance, and joy. I'll go ahead and let's read the verses and then we'll get right to it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, a little bit of introduction about the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica is located in modern-day Greece, And it was a very important, uh, multicultural, large, rich, and prosperous city in the Roman Empire. Now, there's a lot of interesting history about Thessalonica that I could get into, but we don't have time for that. But some have referred to it as a second Rome. That's how important Thessalonica was to the Roman Empire. So someone, specifically the apostles in Thessalonica, could find themselves mixing and meeting with Roman soldiers, maybe Roman officials, people involved in trade. It was a huge center of trade. Uh, Roman colonists, people that were settling the area. Religious heralds, religious speakers that traveled around talking about religion. Philosophers, uh, pilgrims, and other travelers are all converging here in Thessalonica during this time. The city was a hub in the empire that would really become the center of the Christian mission in Macedonia in this area. So Paul established the church in Thessalonica around 49 to 50 A.D. 
And he preached the gospel in the synagogue there, telling them about Jesus the Messiah. And as a result, we see from Acts 17.4 tells us that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, or probably Greek women. But the unbelieving Jews, however, formed a mob to find Paul. And so he left and went to Berea. There, the Jews, being more noble than those in Thessalonica, received, the Bible says that they received God's word eagerly. But the Thessalonians heard that Paul was in Berea. News travels fast. And they followed him there to try to stir up even more trouble. So he left Berea and went to Athens. So while in Athens, Paul started thinking about this church in Thessalonica, and he grew worried because of the trials they were enduring. And we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. So he sent Timothy there to help, help the church. And after hearing a good report, a really good report from Timothy on his return, Paul then went to the city of Corinth. And based on the timing of his travels, we believe that Paul wrote his letters to the Thess- Thessalonians here while he was in Corinth. And he really wanted to visit the church personally. But chapter 2, verse 18 tells us that Satan hindered Paul from going back to Thessalonica. So his letter here and others would have to suffice for him. So that's a quick introduction and and somewhat of a background of what's been going on in Thessalonica and the kind of reception that Paul had there and what the church... You can already get an idea of maybe some of the trials and hard times that the church may be having specifically this mob of Jews that were following Paul around. So verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. So who has sat down and tried to handwrite a letter to anybody lately? Anybody? Um, okay, one person. It's not maybe too. That's not too surprising. Recently, my uh, wife Heather was trying to get some letter stationery for her grandmother for her birthday, and you would not believe the hard time she had, at least where she was going to try to find this. She could only find letter stationery in one place. A lot of note cards we can write short notes, but no real letter stationery. So it's kind of a dying art, I think. Not that's good or bad, but. Most of us, even though that, even though it's somewhat of a dying art, we're familiar with starting letters with the word dear, dear so-and-so, which really means beloved, you know, you're my beloved. But we don't usually mean that when we start a letter dear. We don't usually mean they're our beloved. It's just kind of a polite form of address. But I want to point out that it's evident in Paul's introductory words in this letter, in his, all of his letters, and especially in this letter, that he cares deeply for the people he's writing to. Paul has a genuine care and concern for the churches and the Christian that he's helped birth. And he means really every word that he says. When he says dear, when he says beloved, he means it. It's just not a polite form of address. So letters in the ancient world were very important for some of uh, you younger people. You know, there was no email. Like I, this week, I Facebook messaged with Sam Barber in China. You know, it just kind of blew my mind. It, just boom, just like I was messaging with somebody down the street. But that wasn't the case then. Letters was the primary way that people had, especially letters of friendship, to shorten the distance between the author and the recipient. So Paul here is trying to shorten the distance between himself 
and the church in Thessalonica. And it starts out, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So Silvanus and Timothy, they either probably co-wrote the letter with Paul, or more likely he's commending them as his fellow workers in the ministry. They, They were traveling and preaching right alongside him. Sometimes we may think of Paul as kind of a loner. I don't think that's not really the case. He had people with him, helping him, encouraging him. So likewise, none of us really, if Paul wasn't a loner, you know, then we probably don't need to be either. So the verse 1 says, to the church. So this word church is a very important word. The Greek word here is ekklesia. And too often, I think, this word is viewed through the modern lenses, you know, as a group of Christians who meet on Sundays to worship God and learn from his word, which is true. That's very true. But when Paul used it, I think he undoubtedly understood it against the background of the Greek Old Testament, where the word repeatedly is used, the same word, ekklesia, is used, and it's a translation of the Hebrew word that means the gathered congregation of Israel, or the people of Yahweh, the people of God. So due to this, I think the Thessalonian church should be considered part of the true congregation of God's people who have been established by Messiah, Jesus' redemptive work. So calling the Christians in Thessalonica an ecclesia or church shows their continuity with the old covenant people of God. Now Paul doesn't stop there, but he says that the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Thessalonians have turned from old, false, idolatrous world that they used to live in, in which they were spiritually located, and have entered, as chapter 2, verse 12 tells us, into God's kingdom. They've been ushered into God's kingdom. And one more note about this word ecclesia. It was also used for the governing assemblies among free citizens in a Greek city. So this word was also used for, like, their city council. So they would get together and... And interestingly enough, they would gather usually in the presence of, their, of a deity, of a god, of the city, to whom prayers and sacrifices would be offered. So there's no separation of, you know, false worship and, and state. There's no separation of church and state there. Their city council meetings would have sacrifices and prayers to God. And the Greeks called these meetings ecclesias. So Paul is making it clear that the Christian church has no connection to these idolatrous meetings that were also going on in the city. Again, by clearly stating that this ecclesia, this church, was in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there was no doubt who they served and worshipped, which would have brought much tension between them and the pagan religions, especially the worship of Caesar as God. Paul also very intentionally connects God the Father and Jesus Christ to point to the deity of Jesus specifically emphasizing this by calling him Lord, or Kyrios in the Greek. The implication being that the Father and the Son are two distinct persons. Now this is early on in the Christian church. So as those of you that have been in the history class know, the, our understanding of the Trinity has not been probably fully developed here, but this is one of the key verses that they would use in the future to develop this distinction between God, the Father, and the Son, Jesus Christ, as persons. So the result of being in God the Father, so what is the result of being in God the Father and Jesus Christ? We see at the end of verse 1, they now benefit from God's grace and a relationship, a relationship of peace. So formerly, being at enmity or at war with God, 
they now enjoy peace of being in a relationship with God as their Heavenly Father. This is the same relationship you and I have if you are a Christian and that you can have by turning from sin and unbelief to faith in Christ. You will no longer be at war, at enmity with God, but you will be at peace with Him. So verse 2 says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So we've all received gifts on our birthday, or we've, had, we've given gifts to our children, or on special occasions. But sometimes we get so excited, right? Our kids get so excited, we get all wrapped up in the gift, and we lose sight of the giver. We forget to say thank you for the gift. We're so excited about the gift, we forget the giver. So Paul's children in the faith here at Thessalonica had a similar problem, but it was somewhat worse. It seems that they did not have a thankful attitude toward God because some weren't even sure of their own salvation. How can you be thankful about something you're not even sure about? So because of this, one of Paul's primary concerns in this letter throughout is to remind them of the reality of their faith and to give them assurance and foster thankfulness toward God. Paul does this by offering continual thankfulness to God for their example and their faith. So in this section of his letter, Paul thanks God for his readers due to the godly characteristics he sees in them and which they should also recognize in him. And this is the only letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament where the length of his thanksgiving is not limited to just the first paragraph, but lasts for the entire first three chapters. Paul is giving thanks to God over and over for the Thessalonians. So Paul's emphasis in this area seems to support the fact that he found assurance of faith a very important thing. He found it a very important thing to have, a very important thing for, the, for them and for us to grasp. In this verse, we see that thankfulness and prayer go hand in hand. Now Paul expresses thankfulness to the Thessalonian Christians and then tells how he expresses that thanksgiving in prayer to God. The reason Paul is thankful for them is because he sees in them the traits of genuine Christian living. He is seeing God's grace and work in action. Now, that's a continual theme we'll see throughout this morning's um, sermon. He's seeing their God's grace at work and in action. So we could say then that without a prayerful contemplation of God's blessing, without thinking about God's blessings, there can be no attitude of thanksgiving, right? If we're not Thinking about God's blessings, there can be no attitude of thanksgiving. So I want you to think about yourself for a minute, and I'll think about myself. Say, does this describe us? Does this describe you and me? Do you think often of God's blessings? How many of us complain a lot about the things that are going on? How often do we think about God's blessings in our lives, though? Do we wake up in the morning thanking God, starting the day, God, thank you for this day that you've given me. I can get up and I can go and do things for your glory. So when or how often should we contemplate God's blessing? Is that it? Just in the morning and then we forget about them? Well, Paul says here that we should do it continually or unceasingly. We should be persistent in our prayers of thanksgiving. If not, a thankful attitude will be elusive. It will be hard to have and it will be intermittent. Intermittent. We would have it occasionally, but we won't have it a lot, all the time, if we have it at all. 
So this remembering of God's blessings and grace should be a habit of us. It should be an attitude, right? It should be something that we do constantly, an activity that we do constantly. So I want to quickly suggest three things that will help create a thankful attitude toward God. One is to reflect on how God has answered our prayers in the past. To think about and remember how God has answered our prayers in the past. And you know what? It may be a yes or it may be a no, right? But God always answers our prayers, and we need to remember that when he does it. Number two is from an adoration of God's person, his faithfulness, and his care of us in many spiritual and physical ways. Remembering those times when God has helped us, when he's, he's always faithful to us, right? And remembering who God is, his character, his, again, his faithfulness, his goodness, his love, his mercy that he has for us. Remembering this and being thankful for it. And number three, and very importantly, but when we confess our sins and remind ourselves that Jesus paid the penalty for sin and overcame sin by rising from the dead. This is basically reminding ourselves of the gospel every day. And not just the gospel, but how the gospel has affected us how we have been saved by the gospel, how God has graciously offered forgiveness through Jesus Christ. So we need to remind ourselves often that Jesus paid the penalty for sin and overcame sin by rising from the dead. So we really impoverish and we really weaken our faith when we fail to reflect on what it means that we have experienced God's grace. And this, when we don't do that, it produces an unthankful attitude, right? We're not thankful for what God has done. So our thankfulness will depend on our prayerfulness, and we will give thanks to the extent that we carefully remember God's grace in our lives. So we need to remember God's grace in our lives. So moving on to verse 3, Paul says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul moves on here in this verse to three traits he is especially proud of, that he has heard about that the Thessalonians are doing. He's especially proud of these three traits. The first one is their work produced by faith. So we're not, we don't really know exactly what this work is, But it can refer to a lot of things. This word work can refer to manual labor, the hard work that we do. Or it can refer to uh, ministerial activities that church leaders do. But in the Jewish community, good works were things such as acts of charity to the poor, visitation of the sick, hospitality to strangers, and comfort for the poor and afflicted. And these are, this is probably things or deeds done in direct service to God. In particular, it could be their works of evangelization that he mentions in verse 8 that we'll get to. So he was proud of their work that was produced by faith. He was also proud of their labor prompted by love. Though a different word from work above, this probably means something done in service to God also. Genuine faith and agape love, which is love for God love for other Christians, and love for those outside the church, produces works. And it is impossible, this is a bold statement, it is impossible to say you are a genuine Christian 
without these two characteristics, without work produced by faith and without labor prompted by love. So the Thessalonians had learned the lesson of love from God himself, who demonstrated his love toward them. Their love expressed itself in hard, strenuous, and exhausting labor. You know, they worked hard in service to the Lord. Far from being simply an emotion, right, love sought the best for the other and labored for the other's benefit. It's more than a word, right? It sought, it worked for the other's benefit. The third characteristic we see is steadfastness or endurance inspired by hope. So this endurance is shown by having faith that endures even through trials and tribulations. This is faith that endures when it's not easy to have faith. This is faith that endures in the hard and stressful times. Now the source of this perseverance, the source of this endurance was not some inner resolve or personal strength, right? It was not just some gritting of the teeth and clenching of our fists. But, important, this hope was in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where their hope was centered. So the Thessalonians, like some of us, particularly struggled with losing hope. They saw all these things that was going on around them. They saw the persecution. They saw the hard times and the struggles, right? And they, and they struggled with losing hope. But Paul will emphasize that their hope, as well as ours, was based not on some vague notion that things would get better, right? But on the fact that Jesus will return in glory... He will establish his kingdom fully, and he will usher in heaven and earth. So we could say that their hope and ours is eschatological, right? It's looking forward to that day in the future when Jesus will come back, when he will make all things good and new and right and just. Now these three characteristics of faith, love, and hope are how any Christian, whether then or today, are to weather storms and trials in our lives. If you want to know how to weather hard times, it's through faith, love, and hope. While Paul was commending the Thessalonians for these characteristics, he was at the same time urging or encouraging them to continue to exhibit these traits. As he believed their persecution, because of their faith, would increase. He thinks it's just starting. So we need to understand that our time and culture is not really radically different from the culture of the Thessalonians. We too, you know, some more than others, depending on where you live in the world today, but we too face challenges to our faith and even persecution, right? We start, I think we're hearing about that a little more, how our brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted because of their faith. Even American Christians, even we are finding our culture and our government is becoming more hostile to the truth of God's word, right? We see that happening every day here. So we have to remember, too, this is very important for us to have faith, to have love and hope in order to stand firm against whatever the trials, large or small, we may face. face. Um, But before we move on, I want you to remember something. So the primary point here in these verses is still thanksgiving, right? Paul is still in this big thanksgiving um, part of the letter. So I want to encourage us as a church not to fall into the trap of being thankful only for our material blessings, right? Such as the buildings that we have on campus or 
a larger membership, we may see people coming in, or a high giving one week, right? So these are all good things, and we should be thankful for those, and that can be a result of God's blessing, but I want you to look and see what Paul is thankful for here. What is the main thing Paul is thankful for? He chose to emphasize, what he chose to emphasize here is not material blessings. It was their faith, their love, and their hope, which is what we need to inspire God-pleasing good works on a visible level, right? So I want, I want us all to be endeavoring for these more and to look for these in others. And I want us to be thankful when you have them or when you see them. I want you to be encouraged by these, these things that you see in our brothers and sisters because that's what encouraged Paul, right? That's what was very encouraging to hear to him. That's what produced his thanksgiving was when he saw these three things. So let's be thankful for these blessings. Verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul, in these verses, just to be clear, I don't think he's advocating a paralyzing self-analyzing of of ourselves and if we find you know a little bit of sin in our life we start questioning our salvation so god's not doing that it, paul's not doing that this it's actually he's doing actually the opposite right paul's pointing out that hey i've seen your faith at work i've seen it working out and i want to he wanted to encourage them and us to reflect on who we are now as opposed to who we were before we submitted our life to the Lord Jesus Christ and how there and how our lives have changed because of that. He goes further in verse 4 and says, though, that he knows or he discerns in them the mark of God's chosen or God's elect people. So the obvious fact is that Paul thanks who for their election? He thanks God for their election. And this shows that their election was not due to any act of their own, but an unconditional, sovereign, divine act of God. So when Paul says that they were loved by God, we see the divine motivation for God's act of election. Why did God do that? He did that because he loved them. In other words, God's act of election is not based on human merit or any virtue found in us. But his decision is rooted solely in his love. Now the purpose of this knowledge, the purpose of telling them this, is not to provoke a theological controversy, right? But the purpose is to provide assurance of their salvation and to provide comfort. And I hope and pray that it does for you and for me. Knowing that the motivation behind God's election and choosing is his love. So it seems pretty straightforward that Paul is answering the question of whether we can have a sense of assurance of our own election. G.K. Beale says this about this passage. He says, quote, The apostle claims knowledge of this reality among the readers and so implies that they and we should also have assurance of it. So a similar passage, right, is 2 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11, where Peter says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters... Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. 
For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in verse 5, Paul explains that he knows they are elect, not just because of their faith, love, and hope, but also because of the effective working of God's word that was present in the apostolic preaching and that led to their conversion. So I want to read from chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. That says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. So the word was effective because it was accepted, because it was believed, and because it produced a great conviction of faith in the preachers, and this conviction spilled over into the hearers. Notice Paul says, our gospel, he takes ownership of it because he believes it, and he says, it came to you. Then you took ownership of it. You believed it. So these three things here in verse 5 convey a lot of meaning, right? We have the word power, we have the word Holy Spirit, and we have a deep conviction. These are very closely connected. They're probably related to the three ideas of verse 3, that being of works of faith, labors of love, and endurance of hope, since they appear to have their source in the eternal, effective working of God's word that was carried into the hearts of the listeners. So we can expect to have no works of faith, no labors of love, no endurance of hope without the gracious work of God's Spirit in our lives, which we'll see in verse 6. So when we discern these attributes in ourselves, we can have assurance of the Spirit's work in our salvation. F.F. Bruce says this about what deep conviction is. It is... A deep inward persuasion of the truth of the gospel. A token of the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts. More impressive and more lasting than the persuasion produced by spectacular or miraculous signs. So this is an important point. Deep conviction is a deep inward persuasion of the truth of the gospel. And this is a token or an expression of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. How do we know the Holy Spirit's working in our heart? Because we have a deep, inward persuasion of the truth of the gospel. Now, there's nothing whatsoever to indicate here that Paul is referring to anything like an external, supernatural sign or work here. When we first read that and it says power, that might come into our mind, but there's no indication of that. It's actually quite the opposite Everything in the text points to the power being related to good works and the work of the Spirit in close conjunction with the Word of God. The power is the working of the Word of God in their lives and in our lives. And the believing of the Word of God. So Paul knows the Word was preached with power because it did not return void. The preaching in Thessalonica was not just heard and given lip service to, but there was a recognizable spiritual effect when he preached the word. So the lifestyle traits we're seeing in verse 5 through 10 are an expression of works of faith, love, and hope. 
And neither the Thessalonians or you and me can have assurance of our salvation without these works. Have you ever known anyone who confessed faith in Christ, said they believed, but contradicted that confession by living an obviously disobedient life? Sure, most of us have. We, we live in the Bible Belt, right? More than likely, this person's disobedience reveals an unbelieving heart, lacking power, lacking the Holy Spirit, and lacking a deep conviction that needs to be regenerated in order to believe God. But before I move on, I want to make sure we haven't missed the main point of verses 1 through 5. The main point is recognition of one's evidence of one's election is the ground from which thanks to God swells up from within us. Since God is the one who elects and ultimately inspires good works in people, he alone is the one who deserves to be thanked, no one else. And one last note on this, power and spirit and conviction also refers to the way that the gospel was preached. Paul in verse 5 says as much, that the Thessalonians knew how Paul and his companions lived and preached and how he treated them, right? In order to further confirm their assurance of faith, to give them more assurance of faith, Paul reminded them that they knew that he and his co-workers were genuine divine messengers. And one of the main ways they knew this because Paul's preaching was for their sake and for their advantage and not for selfish motives. He wasn't doing it for money. He wasn't doing it for power or prestige. He was doing it for their sake. It's been said that no preacher or teacher should expect a hearing for his gospel unless it is bearing fruit in his own life. Verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the Thessalonians imitated the pattern of faithful living that they had seen in Paul and that they had heard in Jesus. But how did they imitate them? The phrase, you welcome the message in the midst of severe sufferings and much affliction with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, explains precisely how they became imitators. The Thessalonian Christian received the gospel in the same faithful manner that Jesus and his apostles had lived their lives. That is, both Jesus and the apostles had maintained joy in the midst of trials, especially persecution. Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and Paul sang for joy while suffering in prison. Now, the Thessalonians needed this encouragement because they were going through persecution of their own. I want to read Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. You can turn there with with me if you want. But this gives us a little idea of the persecution they were facing. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. That sounds kind of funny. Bad characters from the store. They went to the store. Formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. 
But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So you get an idea here of some of the persecution they were affecting. There were mobs, turmoil, grabbing bad characters out of the marketplace to go get them, arresting Jason, the leader of the synagogue, making him pay money, bond for doing what? Just letting them come to his house, right? But evidently the Thessalonians had responded well to persecution, but Paul wanted them to continue to do so. And how had they responded well? Well, Scripture says they had welcomed the word with joy. Are are you starting to get a glimpse of why Paul was so assured of their election? Are you starting to kind of see that? They had joy in these intense, nerve-wracking persecution. This persecution that was costing them money and costing them uh, all this grief and all, all, all these people coming after them. They had joy in that. And where did this joy come from? How did they get this joy? It was given directly by the Holy Spirit. Just as faith is a gift of God, so is the joy that Christians are able to display. Even when they are suffering. Even when we are suffering. Indeed, suffering itself is a divine gift. Is that one of our verses that we... Is that something we meditate on? That suffering is a divine gift. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted, given to you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So believers are able to respond with joy because God's spirit inspires it in them. Why would anyone take pleasure in suffering? Because suffering is God's will and we are all to rejoice in God's will. True joy comes from knowing God and his will and then doing his will because the outcome is certain. It's like a soldier in the final days of a winning campaign, I would think. They're driven on to endure the suffering, not only because they're eager to take pleasure in their victory, but also from knowing that the great final victory will bring relief and bring joy. So in the next few verses, we're going to see another reason why they and we should have joy in trials. Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia... And in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. So the effect of the Thessalonians imitating the apostles' faith was that they themselves became examples of faith for their neighbors in their entire region. They were particularly influenced by Paul's own reaction to suffering with faith and joy which in turn resulted in an effective witness to others. Again, these Christians turned to Christ despite persecution and suffering. And as they continued to persevere, they influenced others in the surrounding towns to believe in Christ and to live a faithful life despite persecution. Now, as the verse tells us, they became an example or a model to others by imitating their spiritual leaders. Now, this word model refers not to just being an example to others to follow, but also means a pattern that influences others. The word sometimes can be transferred mold, 
meaning a pattern of something that has the purpose of creating more identical patterns. Think of a cookie-cutter mold, you know. It creates identical um, uh, things of itself. So this brings out what I believe is one of the most important points of these verses, okay, that our lives have a purpose oriented or pointed beyond ourselves, beyond our own holiness and our own well-being. As Christians, we are to become molds for others who are not Christians and for younger Christians in the faith. This is the essence of discipleship, which we'll see from Paul all over the New Testament, is imitation, right? Paul says, imitate me. Let me become your example. Let me become your mold that you become more like. So our lives have a purpose beyond ourselves. That's the whole, one of the whole purposes of the church, right? Our lives have a purpose beyond ourselves. We're here for others to be an example to them, to help them. So as we grow and become more conformed to Christ's image, we are to live in a way that will influence others to become more conformed to Christ's image because they see it happening in us. It encourages them. People learn as much sometimes from our example as they do our teaching. And you all know this. Those who are parents, grandparents, teachers, bosses, even friends, you see how your example can affect them. But we see here that you take that and you throw in persecution and that a Christ-like reaction to trials is a powerful factor influencing others to be attracted to Christ himself. In this case, Paul says model and not models, indicating the whole church, not just a few individuals, was living in this way. This is the only place in the New Testament where an entire church is viewed as a model for other churches. Even though they had some issues, this was an exceptional church in the way they received the gospel and responded to persecution. So it's one thing for a few individual Christians to be joyous in trials, and it's a very good thing. But when a whole group of believers in an area displays this, the gospel has a striking effect on the surrounding unbelieving community, as happened here in Thessalonica. But they were a witness not just because of their lives and their example, but also were effective with their verbal testimony, right? It says, the Lord's message sounded forth or rang out from you. So wonder, maybe, might it be significant that Paul talks about their actions or their model lives before he talks about their verbal testimony. It seems here that God has ordained that the proclaimed gospel be most effective when it is backed up by the godly example of the proclaimers. So God may bring suffering on many in the church in order that it have a corporate witness and a more effective witness. When a group or groups of Christians face trials with a joyous faith, unbelievers take notice because it's an amazing exception to the way the unbelieving world faces suffering, right? This faithful suffering shows also the supernatural power of God. Suffering does not always mean judgment or that we're doing something wrong. So by saying that they're message sounded forth or rang out, Paul is saying that their verbal witness was like a loud noise that seemed to reverberate through the hills and valleys of Greece, or that it echoed out far beyond Thessalonica. Their gospel testimony spread even to Macedonia and Achaia, the northern and the southern areas of Greece, making their faith in God known everywhere. But you know, Paul likes to exaggerate a little bit, so this is probably an exaggeration like Paul uses in other places, but it shouldn't diminish his point, which is their, their faith influenced not only their own city, but to Greece and beyond. The Thessalonians looked outward 
right? They were not an inward-looking group. They looked outward at how they could share the gospel and how their example could be seen in their community and further. So Paul and his fellow missionaries were also thankful that the Thessalonians' witness was so successful because it significantly relieved Paul's further evangelization in the areas around Thessalonica. And even more, where he does have to go, he doesn't have to start from scratch because where they had heard and been influenced by the Thessalonians' faith, they were already a step ahead. So, last two verses, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the reason for this favorable reception was that the Thessalonians' own converts were now proclaiming both the gospel and how the Thessalonians themselves had first believed. Likely, this is again a reference to the Thessalonians' faith and joy and affliction. In, verses, in the end of verse 9 and verse 10, we see a threefold description of the genuine Christian life, right? Turning from earthly idols to serving the true God and waiting for Christ's deliverance of his people from final judgment at his second coming. So they turned from idols that left them with nothing but spiritual death. You get nothing from idols but death. And they turned to the living and true God. So these false gods, as we know, did not exist. They didn't exist now. They, don't, they don't, didn't exist then. They don't now. But it's possible. Don't, don't think that behind them, or that there couldn't have been likely demons who sought to keep people deceived and separated from God. But we see here that there was no syncretism or blending God in with idols or other religions, right? It's real easy in this multi-religious environment just to add God or add Jesus into all the rest of their gods. But this didn't happen. They took a radical step of abandoning these false gods that were part of the worship of their family, maybe. Or we see the city, the whole community had these false gods. They didn't just add Jesus. They turned away from these and accepted Jesus alone. So they turned and served the true God with worship and doing that which was good and just. And Paul might be referring to Jeremiah 10.10 10 when, when he wrote these verses. Jeremiah 10.10 10 says that, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. At his wrath, the earth quakes. So the church is to turn from the idols of this world and to serve God until the end of time. God is the only deity with life and the only one who is real. Now the last verse is full of the reason why a biblical vision of Christ's return is so important. It's important because an expectation of the Lord's second coming is linked strongly here to a moral life and a life of endurance and faithfulness under persecution. So lastly... Uh, four things that we want to see about Jesus here. I'm just going to mention them. I'm not going to comment on them. But the four things that we see about Jesus here is, one, that he is the Son who will come from heaven, meaning he is coming from the place of God the Father. Number two, Jesus is the one God raised from the dead, the resurrection being the core of the apostolic presentation of the gospel. The resurrection is the core message of the gospel. Number three, the son who is raised, his name is Jesus. I want to make sure we're clear about that. And number four, Jesus is the one and the only one 
who can and will rescue us from the coming wrath. God's wrath is the execution of his judgment against those who violate and oppose his law. It's really interesting this morning in the um, <clears throat> kindergartners through the second graders, Sunday school class, which I'm teaching, that was the subject. We're going through an excellent list of God's characteristics, and today we learned about God's wrath, which may seem like a crazy thing to be telling kindergartners through second graders, but it's so very important that they understand why the gospel has meaning. Why is the gospel important? Why is Jesus important? Because he saves us from the wrath of God, which is God's just anger at us not valuing him as the most important and, and of the most worth of anything in existence. So those who persist in idolatry do not await the one who will save them from the coming wrath, but rather they wait on the one who will express his judicial wrath toward them. They will meet their judge. <clears throat> so I want to ask you this morning, who are you going to meet when Jesus comes back? Are you going to meet the one who is taking the wrath on himself for you because you placed your trust and faith in him? Or are you going to meet your judge, the one who will enact his wrath on you? So Jesus has already suffered the end-time wrath for his people on the cross. So at the final end of history, he will return to deliver the believing Thessalonians and those of us who believe from our suffering. No more suffering at that point. Rest assured, for those of us who have trusted Jesus, we will participate in that final great victory. So thinking about that, knowing that, and believing that, we can have faith, we can have assurance, and we can have hope, and we can have endurance as we live our lives in service to God. Let's pray. Father, we are very thankful this morning, Lord, as we think about the ways you have blessed us, both individually and as a people of God. Lord, we are thankful for all the many blessings you have given us. Most importantly, we are thankful for Jesus, who did come, who did have your wrath, your just wrath and anger for sin, he took that all on the cross, Lord, for all who will believe and trust in him as their Savior, Lord. He suffered the wrath for our sins. And we thank you for that and that you've given us faith. And we pray for our faith to increase. We pray for our faith to produce works of labor and labor of love and endurance and joy, Father. And we are thankful for the hope that you have given we pray for assurance of our election, Father, and we pray that you will continue to give us endurance and joy as we continue to love you and serve you and love our neighbors and serve our neighbors, Lord, here in Rinkin and wherever we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.